The difficulty is that, you know, if you if you look at the what we call the progressive wing of the uh, Democratic Party, who, you know, the, the people who want to defund the police and all this kind of thing, you know, and the, put, put in the stock market and all this stuff. Um, they're not free traders. They're they're anything but. So, you know, it's like, well, you know, while, while you're while you're defunding the police and getting rid of the stock market, get rid of the WTO. Well, okay, well, President Biden has to deal with it. And ironically, you know, on, on the far right, we get a collection of these types too. You know, the kind of the isolationists who, who believe that, uh, you know, the United States never, they always got a raw deal out of all these trade agreements and other international agreements. So they should get out of just about everything. And, and so somehow, the Biden administration has to walk a path between those those factions and um, particularly the progressive um, Democrats. So I, so I think it makes it a little bit difficult for them. And I don't know that they can swing way over and, and, and easily revive the WTO the way we would like to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Grain Growers of Canada podcast, Beers with Brandon. I'm your host, Brandon Leslie. This summer series podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Beer Canada. Beer Canada is the voice of the people who make our nation's beers, and their members account for 90% of the beer produced in Canada. The sale of beer supports 149,000 Canadian jobs, generates $14 billion in gross domestic product, and $5.7 billion in government tax revenues. Beer Canada has represented Canadian brewers since 1943. October 6th is a day worth celebrating. October 6th is Canada Beer Day. You can find out more information at canadabeerday.ca about how you can get involved. Today's guest is an academic and one that is worth listening to. Al Mussel is the research lead for and founder of AgriFood Economic Systems, an independent economic research organization dedicated to agriculture and food. Their passion and commitment is to high-quality economic research that will help develop a better, more competitive, more sustainable, and more profitable agri-food sector. Prior to establishing agri-food economic systems, Al was Senior Research Associate at the George Morris Centre in Guelph, Ontario for 15 years. His areas of research expertise are farm management and agricultural systems, agricultural marketing, and agri-food policies. Previously, Al worked as an economist in the Milk Procurement Division of Lando Lakes, Inc. in Minnesota. Al holds bachelor's and master's degrees in agricultural economics from the University of Guelph and a doctorate in agricultural economics from the University of Minnesota, where he was a Fulbright scholar. He is also an alumnus of the International Visitor Leadership Program of the U.S. State Department. Al is a, pa is a past president of the Canadian Agricultural Economic Society and the Ontario Pork Industry Council and has served on the board of the Progressive Dairy Operators. Al also served as a member of BioEnterprises Science and Innovation Advisory Committee. Al, you're a guy that every time I have a conversation with you, I feel like I learned something, and I think others will today too. So Al, thanks so much for joining me here today for another episode of Beers with Brandon. Well, thanks very much, Brandon. Appreciate the opportunity, and and uh, you know, I, I love to talk about ag policy, but, but actually you had me at beer, so... Uh... <laughs> you're not the first to say that. I, I don't know why that's such a drawing point. Yeah, I can't imagine. It's kind of a good summertime mix, you know, end of the day here, we talk a little leg, you know, we drink a beer for some of these fine products, and we'll get into where we're getting those beers from today. Uh, but mm -hmm. first off, maybe I'll start with a question here. And 
you know, maybe can you tell us what areas of research you and more broadly agri-food economic systems focus your work on? And then we can kind of dive into some of those issues as we go along here. Sure. For the last three or four years, well, I, I guess maybe maybe I'll, uh, I'll start it off this way. Um, you know, we, we try to go where the needs are of the industry. And over the last three or four years, the needs have been uh, very strongly in the trade policy and domestic ag policy um, uh, areas. You know, we, we also do uh, we also do a lot of work in um, you know ag ag marketing, uh, regulated marketing, um, and increasingly in what I would call agricultural systems, which which sort of range from uh, production economics to sustainability type work. So, has there been a big trend towards sustainability? I mean, we're certainly dealing with that. Are you guys? I, I know some of the stuff you've put out lately. Is that kind of where you see the the future going for agri-food economic systems too? The, the, the future is going sort of kind of on all fronts, really. Um, you know, what we're, what we're calling uh, sustainability or increasingly the terms being used as resilience, um, that's going to be very important for us, you know. I, I think most, you know, on, on the farm side of it, um, I think most farmers have a fairly, um, you know, subconscious um, uh, awareness of this, and it, and it becomes part of everything that you do. Um, I think at the same time, when people from the outside come in and, and sort of grab hold of one specific aspect or, or want to be able to dictate this or that standard, um, I, I think there's a natural pushback from the farm community, which is, which is understandable because I, I think it's sort of implicitly understood and, and, and it's out there already. And, and really, um, we're probably going to get into this further, but as we get into some of the, you know, mounting challenges around carbon and climate change and some of the other issues around weeds, uh, animal diseases, animal health, uh, et cetera, um, this is going to be more and more important to us. And, but, but it's, it's going to end up being okay because in my understanding, farmers generally come to this naturally but we just all have to work together and, and not sort of have people being told. Well, I mean, that's uh, somewhat relevant here to, I guess, kind of a next question. You know, we have an election underway right now, um, and it seems at times our country is more divided than ever. So what role do you think agriculture can have in, in healing that division or bringing the country together? Can ag be kind of a uniting feature for our country? Oh, I believe it can, Brandon. And, and part of the reason I say that is um, we have forged a national ag policy in the past out of what was essentially fragmented provincial or regional policy. Uh, uh, agriculture is, in, in my understanding, of it, uniquely positioned to be able to do this because it is, along with immigration, it's the only uh, constituency or jurisdiction that is actually a joint responsibility of federal and provincial government. So um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll put it this way. When we take that to heart and we understand that in the uh, agriculture file, uh, provincial governments, producer associations, different commodities have an opportunity to work together and forge a national view, a national vision, and a national ag policy. We, we, we can do that in agriculture, whereas in, in another industrial uh, sector, or, or, or let alone another social sector, that wouldn't really be possible in quite the same way. 
Now, with that comes a caution, of course, which is the, the ag portfolio can fall victim to provincialism or regionalism in which you've got uh, provinces or commodities competing with one another uh, in a damaging fashion, we can fall victim to that very easily as well. So, um, you know, I've come to understand that um, it, it's probably going to be a theme in some of my responses to your questions. Um, people have to be able to work together. We have to realize that there's a lot that can be accomplished through a national agenda, but it can also fall apart quite badly. So there is a risk to it. That's a really interesting uh, point. And I think it's, it's, unfortunately true uh so what do you think you know how does that vision come about then you know i know folks like us and folks like yourself and and, and many other parts of the sector are, are kind of working on on what we believe to be our sector's vision uh and then the larger agricultural sector but what needs to drive that vision and for that to happen well you know i'll, I'll draw upon some recent work uh published by the canadian agri-food policy institute by my my colleague douglas headley in which he describes the dynamic in the late 1980s, in which we were fortunate to have a federal minister of agriculture, who was also the deputy prime minister, who could drive an agenda like perhaps no one else. And he could see that producers were not treated um, equally in different parts of the country, across different uh, commodities. And particularly with regard to access to federal funds, that was not a um, uh, a viable situation wasn't wasn't fair and, and and would ultimately lead to very bad provincialism and I'm not sure what else you know so over that period of time we built um, the Farm Income Protection Act uh, later the White Horse Agreement which uh, you know so, some people will remember at one point in time we had different arrangements between the federal government and all the provinces on crop insurance there were you know a sequence of of one-offs and in such a way that if a province decided to introduce crop insurance for another crop, it could end up influencing the funding available to another province and, and you could get resentment around things like that. We cleaned all that up. And, um, you know, eventually we got to uh, a point in the early 2000s, some people will remember the ADA um, program, which led to the Canadian Farm Income Program. And, and these these whole farm programs, which you know, I understand they've come under some criticism of late for, for a, a variety of good reasons, actually. But, but, you know, that we could come to a national set of um, farm programs that essentially apply, applied uniformly across the country was really a remarkable achievement. Um, so we can do this. Now the, now, the converse is, you know, we can go back to fighting over money under... under uh, tripartite or the various green programs that came about, provinces can try to lure processing plants away from one another. And, and I, I fear that, you know, there's no, it's just too small a country to attract meaningful investment in processing and, and grain handling and things like that if provinces are going to fight with one another and pit one another off against each other. So we have to be able to work together. And, and, and I think it's a very important challenge. People need to be thinking about that. Well, that's, that's a good segue because I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, when you speak of those business risk management programs or BRMs, which are obviously incredibly relevant right now in the current state of agriculture with much of Western Canada and uh, parts of Ontario and BC facing serious drought problems and, you know, some fears that that's going to 
be a problem next year as well if we don't get some fall moisture. So, you know, we're in the midst of some of those consultations on that next policy framework right now, obviously a little bit on pause with, with the election. But there's a lot of recognition about some significant reforms being required for those programs. So I, I'm curious kind of what your views are on those suite right now and what we need going forward for the next both 5, 10, 15 years going forward. What do those programs need to look like to allow farmers to achieve success? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll go back to how we got the program suite that we've had since uh, essentially since 2003, the original uh, Ag Policy Framework. Um, those, those depended um, first on a, uh, a recognition and cooperation between provincial and federal governments, as well as the, the various uh, general farm organizations and, and, uh, and commodity organizations, that we would have fair and equal access to federal funds spent in what we, at the time we called them safety nets, now we call it business risk management. It's, um, it's the same thing. And the other thing that was an aspect of that is um, what happened um, following the Canada-US trade agreement, NAFTA, and then the World Trade or the, the Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture and WTO agreements. We, we could go forward with an understanding that there would be disciplines on other country subsidies. So then, then we could kind of um, structure our own um, uh, BRM type programs with the knowledge of what everybody else was going to do, what they were committed to do, and also the fact that we were going to have material market access so we could ramp up our export-oriented sectors, particularly in Western Canada, with some assurance that we were going to have market access for these products. The dilemma we face today is a lot of those conditions have changed. Um, with regard to the domestic support component, you know, one of the if not the most influential country, one of the most influential is the U.S. And the U.S. Uh, since 2018, we, we know has, has just augmented um, uh, supports to agriculture far beyond what was ever in the Farm Bill. And, and uh, you know, in some quarters, we had some concerns about those structured programs that were in the Farm Bill as well. But these, you know, I don't know how many times we can repeat ad hoc programs before we have to stop calling them ad hoc. But that's that's what these uh, these are right up to well just the other day we had an announcement of 500 million for um, I guess it's going to be for small meat processing plants or something like that but but this just continues on and on and on and we have to worry greatly about this because we're wide open on this and and we don't have the treasury nor the structure to match them the other thing of course that we've experienced the burn firsthand from is the changes practically speaking to market access. So we've, we've had our issues with China. We also have, um, we've, we've had some concerns with the direction taken on the US, by the US and particularly their blocking of panelists to the WTO appeals panel, which means that when you get in a dispute with, uh, well, when you get a dispute with anybody, I guess, but particularly a dispute with the United States, it can only go so far and then, and then uh, it just gets parked. It never gets resolved. And, um, so, you know, thinking now about our direction on BRM, you know, we, we knew by the mid-90s, we knew sort of the pathway we wanted to embark on with our business risk management um, programming, where we wanted to go. We wanted, we were going to live in a world with less domestic support of agriculture by other countries, and we were going to live in a world with, with um, much, um, much better known and predictable market access. 
Both of those conditions have changed now. Throw on top of that, you know, and, and I, I very much hope this is just an aberration of the current year, but the weather risk that we are, we're, uh, we're having to live with, and it's, I realize it's, it's simply disastrous for some people, uh, maybe this is a crazy year, but the worry is that it isn't. If it isn't, well, then that's a moving piece as well. So, look, you, you can't go into a situation like that with tweaks to existing programming. You have to go back in and say, well, look, if the world is changing, we have to change with it. And that's a big job. That was very well said. You touched on a lot of things that I'm going to come back to you on, including, you know, the market access issues in China. But first, you look a little thirsty. So I'm wondering if you'd like oh. to try one of these beers. It's from, you know, a brewery down in your neck of the woods. So if you're up for it, we can uh, we can sample uh, one of the fine products we're going to be drinking from the water from Waterloo Brewing today. Uh, Waterloo Brewing is located in Kitchener and opens, it opened its doors in 1984 and is credited with pioneering the present day craft brewing renaissance in Canada as Ontario's first craft brewery. Waterloo boasts a team of skilled brewers who are dedicated to brewing the kind of beer that they would be proud to bring home to their friends and family. Their state-of-the-art brew house is one of the greenest in North America and produces 750,000 hectoliters per year. In 2019, Waterloo opened their tap house, which not only has delicious food, but houses a small batch system where their brewers produce experimental draft offerings exclusively available there. At any time, they have six different rotating brews on tap to try. Alongside their award-winning Waterloo Brewing craft beers, they also produce Laker, Seagram Coolers and Cider, and Landshark Lager and Seltzer. You can find their products at the LCBO, the beer store, and at your local grocery store across Ontario. This year, they launched Locals Helping Locals, a new program that aims to help local business owners and hospitality workers recover after having their doors shut for so long. They're selling kegs and tall cans of their most popular brands at significantly reduced costs to restaurants, bars, and pubs across Ontario. Now, Al, I don't know about you, but I love that sense of community amongst craft brewers and that Locals Helping Locals is a great example of that. Um, so let's start with our first beer from, uh, from Waterloo, if you'd like. For sure. First up, we are going to start with the Waterloo Grapefruit Rattler. This Rattler is Ontario's best-selling Rattler and blends real grapefruit juice and their craft lager for a crisp refreshment with an ever so slightly bitter finish. So let's have a sip and uh, cheers to you, Al. Cheers. Mm. Okay. That is what I needed on this hot day. Likewise. That is... Uh, I'm actually not a, normally a grapefruit guy, but you don't, it's not an overpowering grapefruit. It's, it's, no, it, it's, it's fantastic. And you know, it's uh, 32 degrees here where I am. Um, not the best ventilated place in the world that uh, hits the spot. Well, I, uh, I actually, why don't you, where, you told me an interesting story. Where are you now? Your office is located uh, on a farm now. You've recently moved. Have you not? Where are you? You're in a barn. Yeah, I, I, I had an office in, uh, in Guelph, Ontario. And, um, you know, like many other people, and during the pandemic, I, I wasn't uh, using the office uh, much. So I was looking for some other options. And uh, a friend of mine bought the cows and milk quota at the farm next door to me, uh, which is in a, I think it's a three-year-old freestall barn. And they, they put quite a nice office in these barns. 
So basically, uh, I'm he's a he's a vet. He's on the road all day. So I'm something like the daytime manager at this farm, uh, and I I go back to doing some farm work, and then uh, and then he gives me the office. So it's a good deal. Love it. You see, you're not just an academic. You're grounded in reality, and I think that's probably why some of these uh, views you hold are are also grounded in reality. So I can appreciate well, you know, it's been it's been almost thirty years since I was day to day on the farm, and I'm enjoying it very much. Actually, I bet. It's nice to get back. I love being around the farm this this summer around harvest and stuff. It's it's uh it's it's quite the way of life and I miss it. But uh I'm glad you get to live it here every day. But so maybe we'll get back to a couple of the, the policy related questions and, and sticking on the domestic before we get into some of those trade issues you kind of briefly mentioned there. I know you've done quite a bit of work on carbon pricing in Canada and as it relates to agriculture. And I'm I'm kind of curious your thoughts on the continued impact of carbon pricing on agriculture uh, going forward, and in particular, if it keeps rising at the current projected rates, up to $170 a ton by the end of the decade here. Right. So um, I, I think I'd sort of fragment this into um, two components, um, and and then within one component, um, uh, a, a, a sort of a different fragmentation. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I've been doing some help to help some work to help the Ontario Federation of Agriculture um, understand um, what the some of the some of the costs associated with this could be. I've tried to break it down into explicit costs and implicit costs. So explicit costs are the are the costs that farmers actually pay. So um, you know you got an exemption on on fuels used in farm equipment, um, but what you don't have an exemption on is um, Heating fuels for uh, buildings, uh, fuels in drying. Then you have, um, you know, then in the greenhouse sector, they have an eighty percent exemption on fuels used to heat greenhouses, but that means there's still twenty percent of it that's that's remaining. Uh, you know, when when you go through this, and, and I, I'm not going to get into the detail of it, but but these are these are material costs. They're material costs on. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Green Growers of Canada, uh, Green Farmers of Ontario have each done work on the uh, on the costs of um, uh, the carbon tax and grain drying, and and I think that's that's been made very known and, and available to people. And and these are simply very material costs, and that's an ordinary year. And and you know some some of us remember uh, 2019 as being a very wet and, and challenging harvest in uh, really throughout the country, actually. And and uh, when you get into a year like that, it's it's that much it's that much worse. Um, you know, even with an eighty percent exemption, we think there's a heavy cost burden that's that ends up being borne by the greenhouse sector because, of course, you know you're you're um, <clears throat> you're heating buildings with natural gas and also using natural gas as uh, as a source of carbon dioxide for plants to grow. The other aspect of this is the is the implicit cost, and um, you know when. So, so agriculture has an exemption on, let's say, diesel fuel, but the trucking industry, uh, your trains, um, ocean freight, et cetera, do not. Well, when you try to work that through the system, you know, there's, there's a, as we've gotten more and more into your just-in-time inventory type systems and people you know, ordering a lot of things from Amazon, et cetera, for comparison, if you go back to the 1970s in the energy crisis, when fuel prices rose materially, they parked trucks. 
So in other words, the, the, there was a demand response in terms of reduced use of transportation services. Today, that seems to be not the case at all. I mean, you know, if you order something from Amazon and it's supposed to arrive here in three days, well, you still expect it's going to arrive here in three days. So what ends up happening is to a much greater degree than, than historically was the case, uh, when you get fuel surcharges put on or, or however it's done with trucking rates, that ends up being passed through into the price of, uh, of consumer products, including expenditures that farmers pay to a much greater extent. We, we think it's, uh, well, the literature would tell us it's somewhere around 25%. Well, if you go in, you know, and, and the simple analysis and, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but because it's based on some, you know, like 10 year long-term outlook, but over the 10 year period, there isn't looking to be a material increase in oil prices according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture outlook. Um, but in Canada, Really, and, and, and again, there's not a, a long-term outlook on the dollar that says that we're going to have uh, some dramatically strengthening dollar that would hold down whatever inflation due to fuel prices would occur. That, that doesn't seem to be on the horizon. But what is on the horizon is the carbon tax. And, and we think that that could be the leading driver of inflation and fuel prices. Well, if that's the case, then, you know, I, I think, you know, for, for the, the farmers that, that uh, that view this, you know, just go through the line items of things that you are buying. Um, you know, machinery parts, repairs, I mean, the trucking services that you use yourself, uh, uh, you know, your supplies, all the various consumer uh, items, you know, like, for example, on this farm here, we're buying milking supplies and all those kinds of things. Well, the inflation from that carbon tax will go directly into those, we think, at a rate of about 25 cents on the dollar. Mm. Now, you know, and what has been done, the, the, um, the current government, well, I guess I should say the previous government because we're in an election, um, you know, there, through the tax system, there, was, there were, were uh, uh, exemptions and credits given to households predicated on how the carbon tax would incre increase the expenditures of households. And it's a little bit different in every province for, for a whole range of reasons. They didn't do that for the farm economy, but what you think about the farm household, the farm household is going to have experienced a lot of the same consumer price inflation that a, an urban household would. But then, of course, for the farm side of it, there, there's any number of you know, supplies, trucking, uh, machinery parts, uh, you know, almost anything that you buy will end up, if it's trucked or rail freight or what have you, it's going to be subject to this. And we don't really have an accounting for that. And, and we think that's quite material. And it's, and it's interesting. When I was working on this, you know, I spoke to one of my colleagues at the Green Farmers of Ontario, and he said, you know, we think that that hidden cost of the inflation on farm expenditures, that could be worse than the grain drying. Mm. And, and it's turning out that perhaps it is. We're absolutely seeing prices rise. And I mean, a, a, all consumers are. <clears throat> and we've seen that amongst food prices. What sort of a factor do you think is that, is that just going to further increase those food prices as, as, we, as we go along here? I mean, you know, I've seen a recent report. They were up 3.7% in, in last month, I believe. You know, is that just going to continue to pile on with that combination of carbon tax driving inflation? Yeah. Um, one of the challenges we have, of course, is that uh, farmers are, are poorly positioned to pass on these costs. So how this plays out, um, you know, one of the worries, of course, that we have is that you get in a position that we've got imported product 
that is not subject to the carbon tax the same way that our product is. And, um, you know, I, I suppose that acts to mitigate the, you know, the consumer price inflation. But on the farm, you know, for the farm community and the ag industry in Canada, uh, it, 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 it not only um, doesn't benefit them, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of competitiveness, right? So one of the things that we worry about a little bit, um, the U.S. does not have a carbon tax. It appears as though the approach that they are, I, shouldn't, I, I could be more definitive than that. They're going to have standards, but the industry is going to be given support to comply with the standard. Now, President Biden campaigned on having carbon border adjustments to deal with the competitive issues that their carbon regulation would have. At this point, I don't see how this is avoidable. We're, we're going to need to have something to protect ourselves, but we have the difficulty, which you know, you know, it's it's interesting during the election, uh, both conservatives and liberals are behind a carbon tax because I think it's understood that uh, this is the most efficient way to address climate change issues. But the problem you have is if the U.S. isn't going to do this, can you imagine what what it would be like if we had a differential carbon, um, if we didn't have a common carbon border adjustment? So we're going to have to find somewhere to get there. But the logic of the two carbon regulatory systems is very, is very different. So you're going to have to take, um, you're going to have to take our system, which is a carbon tax-based system, and theirs, which is a regulatory standard and support system, and somehow mesh them together. Because, you, you'd have, you know, I mean, we've got such an integrated ag and food economy uh, for the most part, that uh, trying to get them to work together uh, otherwise would be exceptionally difficult. And I'd have to think, I'm pretty confident this is two governments that are their governments. That's going to take years. Well, we face the increased price, you know, as currently stated, that will continue to rise. So the prospect of aligning those two in short order seems like a, a large challenge. But I'd like to ask you about, you know, when you when you talk about that, that consumers are perhaps the benefactors and farmers are often the ones bearing those implicit costs. You know, what, what does that mean um, to farm size in Canada? I think it's fair to say through, you know, general farm economics, particularly economies of scale, um, you know, farms are expanding in size and that's due to large or high operating costs and slim margins. So farms are getting bigger by necessity. But that said, there's something to be said about keeping people on the land and our rural communities kind of thriving and alive. So what are your thoughts on, I guess, more broadly, that trend of, of expansion of farms? And, and what does that look like going forward, especially as we have these increased uh, operating costs in, in every asset of the operation? Yeah, so the, um, I believe the high watermark for the number of farms in Canada was in 1941. It's been going down ever since. The arable land base um, has not changed nearly as much, so so. You know, just simple arithmetic, the average farm size has been increasing. Uh, this is a long, long run trend. What we have to ask ourselves, though, is, you know, there's, there's, there's some sense that, you know, year in and year out, well, some of the small farms become medium-sized farms. Some of the medium-sized farms become large farms. Some large farms become very large farms. And, and, you know, if that were true, then it would just be sort of a matter that the distribution of farms according to economic size would just sort of every year just kind of march along and everybody's getting a little bigger. The census data suggests to us that that's not what's happening. 
what it, what is happening is um, you've got some movement from large to very large and very large that continue to grow in size. Um, the small farms seem to be struggling. It's still most of, and, and I think small farms, I think we count as more, uh, less than 100,000 in sales. Um, that's still by far most of the farms. I think it's over 50% of the farms, but, but um, they continue to go down. What's, what's disappearing is the middle. And, you know, I, I, I wonder what that means in, in a number of respects. Um, the one thing I've been thinking about recently, actually, actually, uh, uh, my colleague Douglas Headley and I have, uh, we're working on a, a paper we have coming out on this, is, you know, particularly in grains and oilseeds, where a big uh, determinant of size and, and perhaps even a barrier to entry into the business is machinery. The machinery's gotten quite expensive. But, you know, we sort of, the, the, the larger farms, um, can acquire machinery based on you know, basically the difference between the new machine and the trade-in value. Smaller farms, and, and again, you know, my, my return to day-to-day -to -day farming, I can, I can see it myself. Um, you know, new machinery is, is maybe not out of reach, but almost. So you're looking at the used market. I wonder how long we can continue to drive down the small and medium-sized farm and have the large expand before eventually the market for um, used machinery that, that fuels that ability to acquire new machinery based on basically the, the, you know, the difference with your trade-in. I wonder how long that can be sustained. Logically, it, it must, there will reach a point where it begins to give. That's worrisome, not, not only for some of the reasons you said, you know, having people on the land and, and people support rural communities and so on. But actually, if that used machinery market starts to give, and I, you know, I'm sure there'll plenty of people will say, yeah, the used machinery is expensive because the price of new brings up used with it. And, and I realize that, that's true. But we have to face the fact that the demographics of the demand for used machinery is not promising because usually the largest, most efficient firms aren't buying used equipment. But if that used market starts to give, then their ability to buy new, uh, new equipment and invest will also give with it because you know, the, the, the spread between new and used will just widen and, you, and the cost of paying the difference for the new machine just gets that much more onerous. It's an interesting point. And perhaps enhanced right now with this super uh, semiconductor shortage, I mean, driving up the cost of used equipment uh, due to a shortage of new equipment. So that almost might kind of exasperate that, that trend a little bit more quickly. Well, I, I, I think we should maybe pause and, and try a second beer if that's okay with you. Well, I'm good with it. <laughs> I love that attitude. So for this one, we're going to try the, uh, this is an interesting one. I, I, uh, I don't think I've ever tried a beer like this, to be honest with you. It's the Waterloo Salted Caramel. It's a seasonal beer back for its fourth year. And it's a 6% alcohol where rich creamy caramel and a savory sprinkling of sea salt come together to make this deep brown porter. With roasted malts for a smooth balanced brew, it's got just enough sweetness to set you right for the night and is the perfect finish to any holiday feast. Now, I apologize. I did not ship you uh, a holiday early Thanksgiving dinner in advance here, but... Uh, I think we're going to be able to find a way to enjoy this uh, despite that. So uh, cheers to you, Al. 
Well, that's a that's a that's a good flavor. Yeah, that's good. That is not what I expected. No, me me neither. But I wow, didn't know what good. to expect. But that's a that's a nice balance. Got that little bit of sweet, that little bit of salt. Indeed. Well, we're trying all sorts of new things here today, Al. I appreciate that. So let's let's go to government policy making here for a bit. And you've been mm -hmm. working in the policy realm for uh, many years, and so I think you're well kind of positioned to comment on how government operates. And I would say it seems that officials within government really many really have no idea how a farm works. Uh, yet they're tasked with creating and implementing policy that could have major impacts on farmers. And I think specifically to departments that, you know, previously the it was just the ag department that, you know, farmers would in theory have to deal with. But now there's a number of other departments. And, and I can't blame these folks for not understanding agriculture. If you work in the environment department, you've never really had any uh, access to the industry. Uh, but the fact is that they don't and they need to. So what are your thoughts on kind of this progression of government's knowledge and understanding of agriculture and, and how do we, how do we seek to improve that? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a difficult problem, Brandon. So, um, you know, there, there was a point in time in, in, um, in the federal system, in, um, in many provinces, um, you know, in, in which, uh, government staff, uh, progressed through the Department of Agriculture, and 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 uh, you know many, many of those people uh, came from farms or or were connected to uh, agriculture in in some fundamental way, and and uh, well, to, in this day and age, uh, people rarely, in, in my understanding of it, uh, rarely stay within the same department. They tend to get moved around across departments, and and of course, there's there's uh, you know, there's there's far fewer farm people from from which to draw people who will come in and take on um, take on government jobs. So so that's a challenge. I, I think there's a well. I, I guess an, another point is we maybe take it for granted, but um, to others, this is a very complicated file. Um, if if you're if you're kind of coming from outside of it, it's it it can seem very complicated, and depending on where you land as uh, as uh, staff in government, you may find that your primary exposure sort of is to the you know kind of the troublemakers. You know, so if, if you know, lucky you, you're on the you know handling crop insurance appeals or or well or appeals under agri stability or something. You know, you, you may feel that you you know well you know gee these you know these guys are uh, trying to put one over on us. They're crooks. They're what. And of course they're not, but, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's the impression that you get and you don't maybe get the window into the, the totality of, of the, of the great um, industry that it is. There's another aspect of this that, that I think I'm just maybe starting to develop an understanding of. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been reading this, uh, this book by uh, Donald Savoie, the, the political scientist. In, in which he's talking about um, regionalism in confederation in Canada. And um, one of the things that, that he uh, um, spends a lot of time discussing is, is how it was through the 1930s and 40s, um, 
challenges around the Canadian Constitution seem to come down to provincial authorities, broadly speaking. So if, if, there, was a, if there was a dispute between federal and provincial authorities, um, uh, you know, the, your, your judicial decisions seem to inherently find provincial authority. But of course, provinces have never had a great deal of taxation authority to fund those responsibilities. Federal government has that. So, so what developed was, um, you know, how, how, to, how to get around this? Well, so we get federal provincial agreements. Well, federal provincial agreements in agriculture are natural because it's a, it's a matter of joint jurisdiction. But in other areas, you know, like social uh, programs and natural resources and, and other things, they're not joint responses. So, so these had to be done on an ad hoc basis. And um, what would happen would be, and, 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 and uh, well, and, and this clearly applies to agriculture, what would happen would be, well, the federal government doesn't have an authority in an area, provinces do. They will fund provinces to do uh, certain things on a program basis if they meet federal standards. So a good example is healthcare. So we have federal funding of provincial health care, but those provincial health care programs have to meet federal standards. And, and one of the core standards, for example, is transferability. So if I live in one province and I'm using that province's health care system and I move to another province, then, then there's continuity in that, in that coverage. What has happened over time is provinces have become dependent on so, you know, a provincial minister will say, well, look, my province needs X, Y, and Z. I'm going to go to the federal government and, and we'll just do a joint program to get the resources to make that happen. And they periodically get told that, well, no, what you want to do doesn't meet the federal standard. And it's crazy because you'll have a provincial minister meeting with bureaucrats in Ottawa and, and they say, well, wait a minute, and, and they'll, they'll go to the federal minister. The federal minister says, well, nothing I can do. These are standards that are developed by my senior staff, and you've got to live with them. The reason I get into this is you can begin to understand what happened over about the last 20 years, somewhat in the Chrétien government, more so in the Harper governments, in which you had the politicians um, you know, wanting to take back government from the bureaucracy. That's where that dynamic came from, and the legacy of that dynamic is you get into, uh, and, and, and uh, in, in my experience, departments of agriculture fall into this, uh, as well as, as I assume other line departments in government, where officials, they don't want to take any risks. They want to keep their head down. They want to find out what their job is. Look, I'll be here at 8.30 in the morning. I'm going to be here till 4.30. I'll do what I'm told, but I'm not doing any more than that. Because if I do, I stick my head up. Well, somebody's liable to pick me off. And you know, it, it's it's great fun at the coffee shop to make to make fun of uh, of government bureaucrats and so on. But I think we need to understand the world that they live in, and that world has been shaped by shaped by the broader politics. That is a fair point. I think there's a, a lot of criticism thrown about, but that is fair to say that the system doesn't allow for it from a, an employee standpoint. From how to move up in in that system, it, it's not structured that way. Um, you know, you might, and, and to your point, yeah, you move around between departments and that doesn't lend itself to any level of expertise. Not that there are not experts in ag and other, and other departments have their own experts. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, no, no. And I, and I would, you know, I just, just, you know, to, 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 uh, to, to people who, who watch our conversation, Brandon, you know, 
My experience has been in the extension service in provinces that I worked. These are some of the best people around, exceptionally knowledgeable and driven by a mission to really help people. Also in the research branches, we've got some great researchers. So you don't want to color everybody with the same cloth. Absolutely. And I had a chance in Manitoba to go see, to meet with some of those folks and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's what we need. And it just, at times it doesn't seem that Ottawa offers that. And I get, I think that's a longstanding criticism of, uh, of what happens in Ottawa is, uh, is kind of a top down and a lack of understanding of what goes on on the ground. And, and that's kind of the reality that, that we live in. And as you mentioned, they live in, but in, you know, in that vein, you know, the term evidence-based policy is talked, is tossed around by governments all the time. And we all agree that yes, that's what we need. However, that is not always the case. Uh, recently, we saw a decision uh, taken about maximum residue limits for glyphosate that isn't based on the evidence at all. And it was a, it was a political decision before an election, to be frank. So will governments ever get back to evidence-based decision-making? Is this a worrying trend in your view? Well, it, of, of course, it's a worrying trend. Um, this is a tough one. I, I think the best way to respond to that issue is to say this is a question of integrity and process and belief in process and institutions. So, you know, we, we have a regular a system of product regulatory approvals. Um, you know, the, the industry has had concerns in the past, well-founded, that that, that that process can be slow, um, expensive, but generally not arbitrary, it's, it's science-based. And um, when we get into messing with that, I, you, know, you, 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 really, you really worry about where that's, where that's gonna take us. Um, you know, ju- just, to, just to try and connect a couple of dots here, um, this past weekend, there was an article in the New York Times talking about uh, this new, they're calling it a new superweed. Uh, Palmer amaranth, which I looked at it and I said it's pigweed. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's, there's, there's like, well, in, 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 in southwestern Ontario here, we've got two varieties of pigweed that I'm aware of. Maybe there's some others, but I guess there's a lot of different pigweeds. But anyway, this pigweed is glyphosate resistant, it's dicamba resistant. It's, they say it's going to be, because of some aspects of it, it's going to be resistant to, um, uh, stacked um, herbicides that haven't even been developed yet, which is a, which is a really, really worrying thought. Um, when we're living in that environment, when, where we have challenges like that coming, let alone the climate extremes, which we're experiencing this year and, and perhaps are gonna be much more frequent and severe. Like, look, you can't afford to play politics with stuff like this. Mm. Um, you know the, the this this uh, New York Times article, which which I think it warrants uh, um, <clears throat> reading for anybody who's interested. Um, you know they also make reference to the fact that it, I think most people know this in the 1970s and 80s. You know, like uh, weed resistance, uh, insect resistance, etc. That was a problem, but you always knew that the pipeline was filling with new chemistries coming forward all the time. It appears as though that's much less the case today. And when you make it more difficult for the pharmaceutical industry to operate because you're, you're gonna have changes in regulation that are not uh, science-based, uh, 
or in other cases, you're going to allow petty lawsuits that, that you know, even, even when they uh, settle the lawsuits are costing, you know, most recently uh, a bear crop science on glyphosate issues, it's costing billions of dollars. Like, you know, it, these aren't just write-offs. Like, it, it has to affect their thinking of how they reinvest in agriculture. So yeah, it's worrying. We can we can we can we can wear out and undo the integrity of our regulatory institutions if we keep playing this game. Well, that was well said. I think those are two important contributing factors. And and as you said, you think about okay, well maybe there's another chemistry coming. But if 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 companies in this space are dissuaded from wanting to move forward for a variety of commercial and or you know political government reasons, that's a problem. Well, and, and, you know, we're, 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 we're not helped by our history because many of us, um, you know, I'm in my early fifties, but the people older than me uh, and, and I, you know, like I remember when Roundup came out, I think it was 1978, but, uh, but, you know, look, we, we, you know, we had 24D and uh, 24D had some, didn't always work and had some undesirable circumstances, but well, you know, then we had Adderzine, we had Dicamba, we had all of these things that came through the system and um, it seemed like there was always a new one coming. Well, there isn't. And on the animal health product side, it's been like that for a while. And the best example are your uh, intestinal parasite um, treatments for, um, for, sheep and, for sheep and cattle in which basically there's three and there's there's no others forthcoming and all you know we we just kind of hope for the best we change them up and hope that you don't get resistance well on that dour note perhaps (laughs) we should try our third beer of the day yep this one is uh is the, the third of the day here is going to be uh, is going to go back to where it all began in 1984 for the brewery with the Waterloo Dark. This award-winning dark lager embodies everything Waterloo stands for as Ontario's first craft brewer. Created under their principles of quality and craft, craftsmanship, this light-tasting dark lager delivers flavors of roasted malt with smooth cocoa notes. Now this one, have you tried this one? I, this is kind of their staple. I, I don't think I've had the chance. Al, have you tried this before? Oh yeah, I've had it before. It's good. Yeah, yeah, you like it. Well, I like I like the sounds of that confidence. And uh, if it's anything judged by the first two, I think I will here. Well, cheers to you, Al. Oh, that is good. That's it's light. I see why that's their flagship, their staple that got yeah. them where they are today. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all right, Al. China. <laughs> China is soon to be uh, the biggest economy in the world. Uh, it's simply too big of a trading partner to ignore. However, I'll be frank, there's much of a challenge as an opportunity here. So before we get into kind of trade specifically, I'd like to get your kind of general thoughts on China's role in the world economy uh, and perhaps um, your thoughts on and maybe a bit of an explanation of, for those that aren't as familiar, their Belts and Roads Initiative and what that might mean in the bigger picture of things. Yeah, sure. So, you know, in my my understanding of it, the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party 
is based almost solely on its ability to deliver, to deliver somewhere uh, in excess of 5% GDP growth reliably over a long period of time. So that's, so, you know, you, you stop and think about that. Well, you know, here, here we are, we, you know, we, we think we're a, a pretty developed country, a G7 country. Yeah, we're, we're not developed. We're, we're not delivering uh, five or 6% GDP growth over time. It's been some time since we've been able to do that. So, so that's, that's what they're, um, that's what they're committed to. They have to pull out all the stops to do it, and it's going to be more and more difficult for them over time um, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons relative to their population. Their natural resource base is limiting. And I'll come back and talk about the ag and food part of that in, in a moment. But, um, you know, for example, anybody who's read about the, um, the many and several disputes, including trade disputes that they have with Australia, they're absolutely dependent on there's um, um, Metals aren't something I'm real knowledgeable about, but it's uh, Australian iron. They need Australian iron in their mills. They don't have the same grade or, or what have you, so they have to go get that uh, uh, elsewhere. Um, coal, they need to get coal elsewhere. They're trying to cut back on coal, of course, because coal's near, but, but I don't know to what extent they can do that. Uh, they're, they're just, it, it's kind of like their economy is under the gun all the time. And given that, it's a little bit like that ends justifies the means. So, um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is um, one of my colleagues likened it to the Marshall Plan for China. So, this is, you know, this is their economic development path is to sort of create extensions of themselves through infrastructure and, and other kinds of um, investments into other countries so that they can draw from the natural resource base, primarily, of other countries. Um, you know, some people would call it um, mercantilism or, or, or economic colonialism. And I think in, there's probably some examples where, where um, uh, the examples that can be drawn from. Turning now to the ag and food side of this, um, it's incredible to think, but, but, you know, at this point, we know that China cannot feed itself, really. Um, the most recent, um, they have this, and, and it's uh, just as an aside, it, it's interesting, in, in Canadian government or, or U.S. government, um, you know, strategies for agricultural development are developed by, um, largely by the bureaucracy and, and, and politicians and elected officials come in and weigh in on that and, and help to shape it and so on. But, but, you know, the permanent home of that is, is in government itself. In China, it's not like that. It's done by the communist party. So the, the most recent communist party ag strategy, it's called this so-called, I think it's the number two document. It's, it's referred to as, you know, basically they, they come out and say, we need to choose land use between food grains, which means rice and wheat, or feed grains. We can't do both. Well, for a country with a pretty healthy appetite for protein, particularly pork, that is a, that is a very concerning situation. Secondly, of course, um, you know, they, they went through this devastating pig disease. I shouldn't say went through, they're still languishing with it, but but, um, you know, by mid-year 2020, something like 50% or 60% of their pig herd 
had either uh, died of this disease or been culled. Um, you know, and, and the and the rough, um, you know, roughly speaking, um, uh, fifty percent of the world's pig herd is in China. So, if fifty percent of fifty percent are dead, so that means twenty five percent of the global stock of pigs died as a result of this. Um, they're they're absolutely um, up against it with regard to food security. Well, then you may ask them, well, why do they jerk us around? How can they afford to do that? Well, uh, you know, I heard it once said that they play a bad hand very well. So, you know, there's enough moving parts and enough things going on that, um, you know, so, so they will mix in um, logis- their own logistical challenges, um, worries about COVID-19 spread, et cetera, as means to set up roadblocks that allow them to forestall what's eventually coming. Like eventually, you know, they they are going to need Canadian product. They need Canadian protein, meat protein in particular. They need, they need um, oilseed product. They need, they need feed grains, probably also need food grains. They definitely need feed grains, but they see it as being in their interest um, to, you know, to, to sort of keep this highly uncertain and, and uh, you know, we're, we never know where they're coming from. They, they can, you know, whatever, sneak up on us, surprise us, et cetera. And, and that's a way that they have leverage over us. So, it, you know, it's a little bit like, that may sound like a convoluted explanation of things. The reason it's convoluted is it's not as, as, as simple as A, B, C. It's a more complicated situation than that my understanding of it so how do we deal with it you know you're the, you're the prime minister tomorrow you know is is it is it, it, it further increasing uh, alignment with our allies to to better manage that wild card that's playing a bad hand or you know what what's the path forward in your view i i, I think it's exactly that um you know it was it, it, it's a couple things um, renewal of the WTO in a meaningful manner that would meet some of the U.S. concerns. Some of the U.S. concerns, by the way, are Canada's concerns as well with WTO and the WTO dispute resolution mechanism that can rein in some aspects of how the Chinese operate. Um, that that's that's an important element. But apart from that, you know, if you if you had a, a type of alliance among um, food exporting countries that sort of, you know, could say, look, we aren't going to use access to food as a weapon because that's, you know, that's, that's not ethical. But look, if you want to be able to import food from our group of countries on an ongoing basis, we expect ethical behavior on behalf of you. Hmm. And that hasn't developed yet. Now, you mentioned um, that, that China isn't the only uh, country that, that, um, has challenges with with rules-based global trade. You mentioned the the U.S. and and not appointing members to the appellate body, the WTO. Is there a path forward to reform of the WTO? Do you actually see that? Or is this, you know, we have two, I'll call them bullies. You got America and China that that often don't want to necessarily play by the rules when it doesn't suit them. So are we going to be able to see this? Or is this 
kind of the end of this world-based or global uh, rules-based order? Well, I sure hope not. Um, you know, I, I think we should acknowledge um, Canada and, and in particular some of the officials at uh, Global Affairs Canada for really taking the lead with the so-called Ottawa group that um, has been working on um, some of the issues around the WTO and, and, and reviving that, uh, that system. You know, I guess I'm of two minds as it comes to the U.S. Um, President Biden, and in my understanding of, of members of President Biden's team, and quite a number of these people, they, they, are, they are multilateral people. They, they, um, they like to work with other countries. They, they know how to deal with allies, which is quite apart from, from uh, their predecessors. Um, so that's promising. The difficulty is that you know if you if you look at the what we call the progressive wing of the um, Democratic Party, who you know the, the people who want to defund the police and all this kind of thing, you know, and the put, put into the stock market and all this stuff, um, they're not free traders. They're they're anything but. So you know, it's like well, you know, while, while you're while you're defunding the police and getting rid of the stock market, get rid of the WTO. Well. Okay, well, President Biden has to deal with it. And ironically, you know, on, on the far right, we get a collection of these types too. You know, the kind of the isolationists who, who believe that, uh, you know, the United States never, they always got a raw deal out of all these trade agreements and other international agreements. So they should get out of just about everything. And, and so somehow the Biden administration has to walk a path between those, those factions and... Um, particularly the progressive um, Democrats. So I, so I think it makes it a little bit difficult for them. And I don't know that they can swing way over and, and, and easily revive the WTO the way we would like to. So I, I think we continue to grind away at that. The alternatives for us, uh, frankly, Brandon, are not great. Um, you know, maybe we can um, look at elevating uh, food and agriculture as part of Canada's foreign policy and, and um, using that to seek out new allies and, and um, things like that on a bilateral basis in, in which the, the WTO system and, and multilateral has kind of, uh, you know, degraded quite badly. That's, that's certainly a second best world, but, but I think we would be foolish to not uh, contingency plan for it, put it that way. An unfortunate reality. So, you know, you mentioned the the Biden Biden walking a tough line here, and we think back. You mentioned some of those payments from from Trump, those ad hoc payments to American farmers. That you know, in a couple of years, when when that when those numbers kind of come through the WTO, they might well be outside of their green box funding. Like they're not in a position that they 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 might not want to have a functioning WTO. But do you think Joe Biden? Well, well, uh, you know, former uh, former USDA chief economist Joe Glauber has called them out. They've said 2019 they're over unambiguously, and if they're over in 2019, they're going to be over in 2022. Absolutely. So yeah, so there, there's there's going to be no surprise here. I, you know, one of the interesting political questions: What are we going to do with that bombshell when it lands? Because you know it's right. coming. Yeah. Are we going to say, well, well, or are we going to go? Are we going to challenge the U.S.? I, you know, we don't want to be challenging the U.S. all the time. They're our largest trading partner, but it it, may, it makes it very difficult for us to handle it. 
So do you think Biden's going to continue that path for electoral reasons? I mean, he didn't win all those states. So there's. there's well, we, we knew that, you know, he, he doesn't have a great deal of choice. I don't think, you know, I mean, much and all is we'd, we'd like him to back off on, on uh, a lot of this stuff because it's, it's ultimately counterproductive from a, from a variety of respects. You know, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, he needs to win Iowa. He needs to win, uh, you know, he had a very tight vote in Wisconsin. There's, there's, you know, Midwest states in particular, he needs to be able to carry them. And, uh, you know, if, if he was remembered as the guy who took a, a hatchet to the government check that I was getting, well, that doesn't help his electoral chances much. So I, I, think, I think he's maybe in a little bit tough. And I, I wish I could say it differently because I'd certainly like these things to disappear because it's terrible news for us. No, uh, absolutely. Trade is starting. Um, you know, when we think maybe outside of, or to, you know, more broadly, we see this protectionist movement, um, particularly through COVID. I think it was happening before. And well, I mean, personally, I obviously don't, I don't agree with it. I think I understand the reason in theory um, for it from a domestic political, domestic political standpoint in some countries. But the reality is that we're facing tough growing conditions across much of the world. I mean, you look at rising grain prices, for example, it's not because Canada's had a drought. It's because, you know, China's had flooding. It's Argentina and Brazil have had frosts. The Black Sea's having a tough, tough time. Like there, there's, there's problems everywhere. Is this a long-term trend though, in your view, or is this kind of a symptom of the global pandemic or was that, will that fade as we recognize COVID to be endemic and, and things kind of, that's the new reality. What, what do you think in that, in that frame? So, you know, I, I, for, for, for the current year, you know, I, I think that's a little bit of a question for the, for the weatherman. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> some days I think rather than do an economic forecast, I'd be better off being a weatherman. But anyway, I, boy, you, 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 you sure hope that this year is an aberration. Um, however, something else has changed, and, and maybe it is related to the pandemic. There is more... Um, much more willingness on behalf of countries as, as well as companies and individual citizens to get into um, habits and practices or policies in some cases of, you know, what amounts to hoarding or, uh, or, you know, attempting to manage food security within your own walls type thing, which, which, you know, only further exacerbates um, the distortions uh, that we've had from the pandemic and, and, you know, the disruption in global food supply chain now exacerbated by what appears to be climate change based uh, droughts and, and other uh, poor growing conditions. But I, you know, I was reading something the other day here again, they were, they were talking about water in the middle East and um, you know, there's some concern that in, in the not so distant future, some countries are going to become like practically uninhabitable due to due to due to uh, climate change and disparity of water. And uh, you know they were they were talking about uh, it, some of the countries like uh, Saudi Arabia. I think UAE was another one. You know you see pictures of these dairy farms in in uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia. Like what on earth are they doing? I mean, like. Uh, how can this possibly work? You know, so we've got the, I mean, you've got beautiful facilities, um, you know, beautiful irrigated alfalfa crops and so on, but they don't have the water to do this. And, but they are because they fear 
uh, not being able to access it elsewhere. And by tying up and using their water that way, in such an inefficient manner, like, you know, a, a, a desert that reaches 40 degrees Celsius isn't a place to be milking cows. Um, they, you know, they, they exacerbate the situation. Now, in turn, maybe this opens some opportunities for Canada because um, it, we don't, not, notwithstanding the difficulties of this year, broadly speaking, we don't have, you know, if, if you're in the Middle East, my goodness, you, you've got any number of, of really almost desperate challenges on a daily basis. We don't have those and hopefully we never get them. Um, but, but the, you know, they're difficult. Maybe we, maybe one of our opportunities is to help them. It's an interesting point. And just quickly, just back to China, you mentioned kind of stockpiling. And I think that was a fear when they were buying a lot, this is pre pandemic that, that they were had a significant stockpile and, and their, their reporting wasn't quite accurate, which would be the surprise of no one. Is that clearly not the case anymore? I mean, you look at some of their export sales or their imports, they, they are, are in a tough spot, do you think? In China or the Middle China. East? In China, sorry. China, yeah. You, you know, China can be an enigma. You know, so 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 stockpiling. Well, you know, we went through, you go back a year and a half ago, and it's understood that there was some audits of publicly owned grain storages, and some of the grain was found to have uh, spoiled or rotted or not made grade and then some of it flooded out as you made reference to there was widespread unseeded acreage so really all they were doing you know the imports were predicated on building back up those stocks or or making up for the unseeded acreage due to the floods and so on no no no, no question but then when you get into it like well you know let's go back to pork here for a moment so you know everybody's seen i think at this point these pictures of hog barns that they're building that look like apartment buildings like one of them was going to house 6,000 cells on one site in this, in this apartment building. They brought in um, French or other European pig genetics to populate those buildings. Well, they're discovering you can't feed those, that genetic level of pig. You're not feeding them swell. Huh. They need grain. Well, yeah, but, but China doesn't have the grain. So, so you know, are they, are they importing corn from the U.S. or barley from us or whatever? To, to feed the pigs or to, or to build up the storage or, you know, or they, are they building up extra storage because they're worried about a future embargo because of geopolitical issue? You know, I, I think all these things are on the table. It's, it's just difficult to sort through. It's interesting. I have seen some of these videos and I mean, I had this notion in my mind that a Chinese pork farm was pretty basic you know kind of back to the land more or less and i think to some extent that probably still exists but these are some pretty crazy facilities they got elevators going up and down like it is it's uh it's pretty remarkable with that genetic piece and and the feed is a is a really interesting concept that you know i'm sure over time that they may rectify but it's interesting to know some of those reasons that those stockpiles might be uh returning and it might not just be to stockpile for for future uh it, it might be a need yeah. right now here too well you know one of the one of the difficulties we have i think coming from a, a canadian or north american perspective is there's a tendency to think of the chinese economy and the chinese farm economy as being centrally planned and, and you know a bit like the soviet union was and it really is it's never operated that way they always had small farms medium-sized farms 
and uh, you know, plenty of controls in place, but still people were still running businesses and so on. One of the difficulties they've had is, you know, there's been this incredible, you know, as, as you can imagine, when you when you go through 50% loss in your livestock base, a spike in price, but but most of the time there's counter trends within a trend, right? So it spikes up and then it comes backs off by 30%, then it's up again, and it's and it's sort of searching for a top type thing. Well, those whipsaws, a lot of the medium size or what you call you know basic hog operations. I think a lot of them went bankrupt or were terribly financially strained through that because they had ex- very expensive feed throughout and the pig price whips on back and forth. So, yeah, it's 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 almost a study unto itself to try and and I don't I don't purport to understand all of it, uh, uh, Brandon. I try to learn as much of it as I can because. You know, some people I think think that well, and, and to be honest with you, one time I thought this like, how do we just avoid these guys? Just don't deal with them. You know, and look, the Americans want to sell in their stuff. We'll backfill for the customers that the, that the Americans let go, and we'll supply them. We can't do it. We can't do it. That's not going to work. We're going to have to deal with them, and it's uh, it's unfortunate, but that's that's how it is. That's reality. Well. Al, we got one more beer left to try here before I give you a couple big, big picture questions to kind of close things off here. And I did uh, this one. You'll see is going to be in a uh, a little bit more of a fancy receptacle this time around. This is our fourth one. Is going to be the uh, the Waterloo Fest beer, which is a seasonal brewed for Oktoberfest steins. This special special batch boar is brewed in honor of Oktoberfest. Made with the finest malts and hops, Fest beer is faithful to Oktoberfest tradition, full-bodied and malty, with a bready aroma and mild bitterness. So I did go ahead and uh, bring my, my favorite stein here. I uh, apologize again. I didn't send you one of those at the Thanksgiving dinner. That's oh, okay. Right? Yeah, cheers. That feels like I'm at Oktoberfest, yeah. Yeah, I like Oktoberfest. I imagine that's a pretty big thing down in your in, in southwest Ontario. There's a fairly large German contingent down there, is there not? Yeah, well, in Kitchener in particular. It's a big deal in okay. Kitchener. So are you going to be going over there in late September, October, whenever it's being held this year? When I was younger, I did. I probably... <laughs> probably well, I know not the best so way to feel year. young, Al. <laughs> At least for that first night. We'll, we'll, uh, yeah, at least for the first night. Yeah, I'll go with that. So, like I said, Eric, kind of a, a couple of big picture questions. And and uh, let's start with the risk. What are the, the two or three biggest risks facing Canadian farmers, not just this year, not just drought, but kind of for the, for the future of farming in Canada? Yeah. Um, I, I think the... Third most significant risk, I'm going to say, is the various and sundry risks related to trade and trade policy. So um, um, reduced or uncertain access to export markets for our products, um, uh, in- increased domestic support uh, outside of obligations uh, on behalf of other countries. These, these are big risks for Canada. Um, a- absolutely. Because um, you know we our programming set is 
predicated on other countries respecting those commitments. And, you know, as we see the beginning of, of those going sideways, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with an open economy, we're, we're open to those imports. We depend on exports can be displaced by others uh, as a result of it. That's, that, that's, that's simply a really big risk for us. The second, or number two as a risk, I, I do worry about, uh, you raised before, sustainability issues, and I'm going to say real or perceived. There are real sustainability issues in agriculture, and um, and I think we need to recognize those. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned you know I mentioned weed uh, weed resistance. That's one. I mean, the the other, you know, a drought tolerance. Um, you know, the the ongoing performance of uh, whether you're talking about field crops or, or livestock and the focus of breeding on productivity traits and less on uh, what I'll call resilience traits as a result. Um, there's uh, the, the adequacy of uh, our technologies, whether they're you know, uh, pesticides, pharmaceutical products, um, uh, seed technology, et cetera, to cope with these range of things. Those, those are, those are real uh, issues. There, there's, there's any number of others that are perceived. And of course, as, as you discussed, you know, the silly stuff around glyphosate um, and, you know, and, and in Ontario, we've gone through this on neonic uh, insecticides and so on used essentially as a wedge political um, topic. Those are real risks for us. And, and much and all as I think trade is a big risk, I think those risks are probably even bigger. Hmm. But you know, the, the biggest risk I think is a lack of, well, I, the, it, I'm not saying that we have a lack of willingness to do this, but if we are unable to work together or, or, or uh, unwilling to work together to tackle these issues, uh, yeah, and, and collectively, um, then ultimately that puts our food security and, and to some extent global food security at risk. So, so really, I think the biggest risk is, is not being able to work together to deal with those issues. That's a great point. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that's been lacking in our sector to some extent, and I think is actually trending in the right direction now. I think there's a lot of realization around that need to work together and collaborate um, and find find allies and, and work on issues together. So in that vein, on the flip side, where's our biggest potential or what are, you know, a couple of biggest areas of potential growth in helping uh, drive post-pandemic post economic recovery through agriculture in Canada? You know, I, I, I think um, <laughs> it, it, it's, an, it's an opportunity. I, I, w I wouldn't want to suggest that it's, that it's, sort of universally a good thing, but we do have a hungry world and, and global hunger is re-emerging, sadly. Um, but there are, there are countries that are, um, are concerned about food security, may even, be, may even be food insecure, that have money to pay. And, and Canada can be a solutions provider. And, um, and, and we know that. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's proven it's, it's economic development for us. 
Um, and, and there's a lot of good we can do in the world. And uh, that, that makes me feel optimistic. With good reason. And I know all the farmers out there listening are going to play their part and uh, will happily go along and sell those, sell those products around the world and, and take pride in that fact that they are providing food security for people literally around the world, not just Canadians, people around the world. So Al, I have one final tough question for you here. Out of the four samples from the water, from Waterloo Brewing you've tried today, which is your favorite? Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough uh, question. I'm, I think I'm going to say the Rattler. And now I, I had the Rattler first. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a bit sweet, but boy, on a hot day like we're having here today, did it ever cut your thirst? Boy, it, it was beautiful. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go with that salted caramel. Um, the Rattler is good on a hot day, but that was a flavor that I hadn't experienced before. And uh, I will get more of them. I found that one to be a, to be a very good drink here. So, so Al, you know, thanks so much for, for joining us here. I'll, I'll leave the floor to you for any final words before we, uh, before we exit stage today. Well, uh, you know, thanks, thanks to uh, Grain Growers of Canada, uh, Beer Canada, uh, uh, Waterloo for, for, uh, for sponsoring this. Um, you, you know, I, I, I struggle back and forth. Um, there are so many problems in the world. Many of them are problems that in some fashion or other involve food and agriculture. But I, I, I do really believe that um, if we work together, there's a tremendous contribution we can make to this. And uh, we need to remind ourselves Absolutely. And we pre- appreciate your perspectives and all the work you do. We know we've worked with you before and, and you always do fantastic work and, and you're part of that solution too. So I really appreciate that, Al. So thanks so much for uh, joining us today uh, for this episode of Beers with Brandon. Uh, I hope all listeners enjoyed it. And uh, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Beer Canada, the voice of those who make our nation's beers. Thank you to Waterloo Brewing for providing these excellent products to taste. And I encourage you all to stop by and find out for yourself next time you're in the Kitchener-Waterloo area or pick them up where they're available near you. And most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with all things Grain Growers of Canada, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until next time, get out there and explore more products available from Waterloo Brewing and enjoy some high quality Canadian grains in Canada's favorite summertime drink, Canadian beer. Take care.